Welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we explore life in the time of Grant Morrison across the DC universe and beyond. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And we just had quite an in-depth catch-up before actually pressing record. I mean, we always natter a little bit. Yeah. But uh, honestly, PJ, you'd think given how much we just talked, that we hadn't seen each other in five years. <laughs> you you would think, you would think, but no, gentle listener, we saw each other in person last week. Uh, like, like honestly, like, uh, the entire history of a JLA cask is going to be, like, going to be divided into two, two epochs of, uh, <laughs> of time, uh, because everything up until this point has been recorded remotely, uh, and also, um, should stress, with our with our webcams off, um, we we record in pure audio together. Yeah. So I yeah. have. So aside from um, aside from uh, living vicariously through PJ's social media posts, I had not seen his face. I believe since uh, summer twenty eighteen. I want to say uh, autumn twenty eighteen. I think I think <sighs> it was Thought Bubble oh. in twenty eighteen in York. You're right. Yes, of course. Yeah. And was that the last show in York? Um, do you know? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, because then they jumped to Harrogate, and then, of course, the unpleasantness happened. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's it's hard to believe that the entire the entire recording history of this show um, has been done in uh, in darkened bedrooms in, in different countries. Yep. Yep. Every single episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so so we we had a, a, a very uh, wonderful and surreal uh meeting at uh, UK Games Expo. Uh yeah. The UK's premier tabletop gaming convention. Uh, I it was my first time there and I had a lot of fun. I definitely also spent too much money. Uh yes, now we were commiserating about this as well because um uh, thankfully PJ, it's not as though you have any big expenses on the horizon what with um uh a new child and uh you know a new car. So you know I'm going to play all these games with my child in several years when he's old enough. <laughs> yeah, th- this is the last time you will ever buy games. You buy them in, in bulk, and then they last you a long time. Yeah. 20 years. <laughs> yeah. But you can parcel him off to university, and you won't have to worry. <laughs> he, can, he can entertain himself at that point. Oh, but then he's moved out, and I've got no one to play games with anymore. Uh, we'll probably all have some kind of... We'll all be wearing that weird um, Apple glasses thing they've just brought out. Do I have to? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, money will be meaningless at that point. So, you know, the three and a half grand price tag will be will be nothing. <laughs> but oh, it was lovely. Um, 
I was I was working with uh, the Big Punch team and uh, couldn't make it on Friday due to family circumstances, but um, had a very cryptic, what could it mean, tweet or message from PJ saying, well, gosh, I hope you're there on Saturday. And uh, I was like, gosh, what could that mean? How will I how will I unravel that? And then who I'm should, an enigma. Who should, who should turn up at my table but the most knowledgeable man in comics? It's me. Yeah. I did. <laughs> it really did help that your table was right by the entrance. So I walked in and there you were. <laughs> oh, I mean, PJ, tell me about it. Yeah. Like, uh, it was a good show. And I think being right by the entrance helped a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but no, sadly... Um, yeah, it was really nice. Yeah, it was really nice to see you, PJ. It was lovely to see yeah, you. Yeah, likewise. And um, I'm sorry that, as is the way of conventions the world over, every time you see nice people at conventions, you always talk for like 10 minutes and then the rest of the day is just an absolute blur. Yeah, I think, you know, I already own John's game, Sandwich Masters, and there were people there who didn't, so he had to prioritise capitalism and getting money out of them, I think. Yeah, and that's really how I see people, PJs. Like, yeah, uh, customers. They're marks. Yeah, basically, I see customers and then I see just, you know, wastes of space like yeah. you, who, yeah. you know, I've gotten everything I can out of you. It, that's entirely fair. Yeah, you're me. You weren't recording an episode. What do you need to talk to me for? <laughs> yeah, you're worthless to me, PJ. Get away. <laughs> um, but no, no, this is mostly what we were chatting about off air because. Um, it was a lovely. It was a. It was a busy weekend, but it was a lovely mm. weekend, and we had a good time. It sounds like you did as well. Yeah, I had a really good time. It was lovely. And did you? This is this is going to be a bit esoteric, and our listeners won't care about this. But did you travel there by car, PJ? I did. And was that the last ride of your old car? No, the last ride of our, our old car was taking it to be replaced by the new car. <laughs> which ah oh, oh no, which is of course now gone to the great scrap heap in the sky. Sadly, yes. Yes, it, our old car has been crushed. Now, you see, some people listening might be like, you know, well, this isn't this isn't relevant. How is it? How does this relate to the uh, this this new golden era of comics? New, but from the the, the 90s. Hmm? And I'd be like, no, 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 no. This is the this is all part of the mythos of um, you know these very human human heroes that you get to listen to every episode because PJ's chariot has has been upgraded. It's been retconned. Yeah, I'm doing so well from this podcast that I've got a better car now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's how it works. I haven't seen a penny, and you never will. <laughs> no, we do it for the love, which is which is which I which is because we, we're stupid. It's what we keep telling ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a uh, hashtag trending uh, today on the social media called hashtag comics broke me. And uh, it's obviously a, a rather a, a tragic uh, collection of stories of people who have um, put their physical and mental health on the line for for the sake of making comics. And mm. um, it is a weird serendipity to it because I, I think definitely comics broke me this past fortnight. Like we, I've done three conventions in two weeks, and I, I think uh, I, I I don't know if I can keep doing this. But it was it was punishing this time, absolutely punishing. We're getting on in years. We are, PJ, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously I've, I've got, you know, 20 years on you and, uh, you know, hmm. <laughs> and I'm so, I'm so vibrant, but, uh, but God, yeah, yeah, it's hard work. It is, it is, and I'm not doing it at the moment and I'm tired, so. Well, to be fair, you're, you're doing something very noble with your time. Yeah, I'm, I'm raising a, a new little comics fan. 
The, who uh, only read the best. Who only reads the best, indeed. I mean, um, I'm just grateful to you, PJ, for having the wherewithal to suggest that we get ahead of our recording because, you know, you, you rightly knew that we had such a busy May ahead of us. Yeah. The consequence of that is is that I don't think we've sat down in front of, well, in, I was going to say in front of each other, but in front of a microphone for a good few weeks now, have we? So, yeah, it's it's been a few weeks um, and... Yeah, I've forgotten how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <coughs> so one thing I can remember is is where we were. We are, of course, two issues in to our issue-by-issue issue recap of uh, JLA Year One. Yep. And if I c- recall correctly, PJ, um, so far we have seen uh, Green Lantern, Flash, Black Canary, Jean uh, Jongs, and Aquaman come together... In the yep. wake of defeating the Appalachian invasion, an alien that, invasion, that is correct. Okay, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm recalling something. Oh, and and if, I also recall PJ, you explaining how this is a post-crisis reimagining of the early years of of heroes, and yet the events as we witness in this book chronologically take place before the events of the crisis because reality got reshaped and stuff precisely precisely so which is to some extent why it has a kind of retro-y feel to some extent yes yeah Yeah. i'd say so yeah because it's set in the kind of nebulous past slash before time that superhero comics often do where when I don't know when they want to reference an old story that was released in say 1963, if they ever do a flashback in the future, then you know, for example, members of the public aren't wearing like they don't have like Beatles mop tops and uh, you know wearing yeah. miniskirts and that sort of thing. So yeah, the creeping timeline of superhero comics—it's a thing to behold. <laughs> Very much, yeah. Well, I mean, you can tell my brain is fried because I just completely waffled there but is it is it is it worth just diving into the action pj i think it might be yeah so so yeah so where where exactly did we leave off at the exact end of the previous issue uh with the uh new jla having announced their presence to the world uh, at a press conference but being attacked at said press conference by a group of supervillains hired by locus and vandal savage uh, the league delete deleted no defeated <clears throat> words defeated the villains and then Vandal Savage was like oh Locus you suck and then Locus showed something <laughs> to Vandal Savage that we didn't see and Vandal Savage was like, oh maybe they don't suck and um, the JLA the fledgling JLA now that they have a name um, have gained um, an anonymous investor basically yes who's uh, yeah. basically said he will. He will pay for everything, you know. He'll he'll buy them um, headquarters, equipment, you know. If they need money, all they have to do is ask. Uh, the one catch is that he wishes to remain anonymous. Basically, could be anyone. Yeah, he he's working through a gentleman called Simon Carr as his representative, who has also pointed the league towards uh, Cord Industries, who may be able to provide them with some equipment. Yes, apparently. Um, there, uh, called Industries. There is a uh, a young but talented inventor in Chicago who may maybe of some help. There we go. That's there where we, we are, and that's where we're at. So, PJ, um, 
without further ado, let's dive in. Let's dive into issue three. Let's do it. Let's do it. And we just open straight off in Locus headquarters. Uh, yes, indeed. With with everyone's favourite uh, mustachioed villain, uh, T.O. Morrow. <laughs> I do love T.O. Morrow. He's so stupid. He's great. I think I love him because of the Tomorrow Woman story. Yeah. If I'm yeah. honest. I think that's kind of like the best de- and defining depiction of the character. Yes, I agree. But I think also just he's he's so stupid as an idea that he could only have been created during the Silver Age, but then just stuck around. And I have a real soft spot for characters like that mm. who like sh- just shouldn't really be appearing in comics anymore, but they persist. I That's a very good point, actually. I have a soft spot for uh, characters that, as you say, are a little uh, inherently ridiculous, but because they've lived... Uh, a long time in publication history, they've almost gained a kind of self-respect, shall yeah. we say? Like, yeah. um, one thing I really love about that Tomorrow Woman storyline is that it's the dedication to the noble art of supervillainy. Yes. That's T.O. Moral. <laughs> but, like, losing is kind of the point, but you do it in style. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, remind me, PJ, T.O. Morrow, uh, does he? Ha- it, I can't remember how it works. Is he? Is he just such a genius that he's inventing things that won't be invented for a while, or is he actually stealing ideas from the future? I think he's just just one of those genius fellows who invents things. Yes. Okay. My recollection. Cool. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good because it it lends itself to the idea of him being a just a crazy genius. Yep. Have. Yep. You, I forget, PJ. You've read um, Fifty Two, yes, you? yes. And T. O. Morrow pops up in that. I want to say, I think so. I've only, to be fair, I've only read it once, and that was as it was coming out, month by, uh, uh, sorry, week by week. But um, I do. My main recollection of it is the Booster Gold storyline, and then the. Um, I want to say there's a couple of Flash villains who get chained together for a big bunch of it. The Piper and another one. But oh, um, yeah. my, my big recollections of it. But yeah, I think T.O. Morrow was yeah, involved. There's a, there's a fun element where um, a sinister organization are kidnapping super geniuses and yes. locking them on an island so that they can build super weapons. And the idea is that they're all ridiculous. And, and, and it's because it's, um, both... Wade and Morrison were part of the four-person team that worked on that, along with Greg Rucker and Jeff Jongs, I want to say. So there's a lot of like deep dives into DC Comics history there. Uh, and I think they make the, the idea that T.O. Morrow may have been Doc Magnus's lecturer. Yeah. So, uh, so Doc Magnus from the Metal Men. So they they had a relationship going back, and uh, I think the big crux of it was that Doc Magnus was like, "I'm a genius. I'm not insane." Yes. And they were like, eh, eh, "Maybe a little bit." <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I'm going off the point. Um, uh, Tio Morrow is great. Yes, and he is here working with Locus to basically dissect the giant alien bird construct. Thing that fought the JLA. Uh, Vandal Savage is still around as well because he's clearly now 
drinking the Locust Kool-Aid. And I just love this little collection of villains that Wade is starting to build up around Locust. Yes, it's nice that they're outsourcing. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess that Locusts are the new creation for this book. And as, as far as I understand it, and uh, yeah, it just kind of makes sense that you probably would hire some of the best freelance evil geniuses you could find. Uh, and also, this gold bird, I you know, I'm just going to see why it got so much um, attention in um, that JLA story that Wade wrote. Because, yeah, it, it's almost like the mascot of this book, the Appalachian <laughs> bird thing. Yeah, and uh, Savage and one of the locust scientists talk about what the army are doing with the other alien specimen and apparently uh, the army hasn't been able to do anything so it's just been returned to the Justice League for safekeeping uh, but yeah locusts have dissected this giant golden bird and Morrow has created a big orange guy that they're going to try and give life with stuff they've taken from the bird uh, yeah and um, you know at this point you know we, we could be asking like to what end we've yet to get to the bottom of that but um in classic uh, Dr. Frankenstein Skyly, uh, it flips a massive lever and energy crackles through this kind of artificial being they've created and it screams and uh, explodes. Yeah, and there's a lovely moment. Morrow shouts, good lord, and he's like, blasted, we were so close. And then he's like, next time I'll have it, I'll create a being of stupendous power, I swear it. But I almost feel like there's almost a little smile on his face and he's almost enjoying this. I feel like Morrow likes failing because it gives him a chance to try again. Yes, a hundred percent, PJ. And I, and I think that would be, um, I think that's the risk you take when you hire <laughs> an evil genius. Because, yeah. yeah, he's he's doing it for the art, really. <laughs> um, yeah, and, um, you know, Vandal Savage, you know, kind of takes it... Uh, takes it uh calmly in his stride as he always does and um so he and he just asks locus you know well how does a how does a band of rogue geneticists plan on toppling the justice league of america now but the locus scientists are still confident they're like oh it's going to be easy the heroes haven't really pulled together yet so we can take them out before they fully bonded as a team and on that note we cut to chicago and cord industries um, where um, a bunch of men uh, dressed as sharks like you do with guns <laughs> like uh, you do. Are, have blown up a part of a building and, ha- and are striding in and uh, they're basically saying like you know grab everything in sight boys new weapons for a new age and all for an all new killer shark uh, and my question to you PJ is is one of these men Killer Shark, TM, and are these his Sharkling minions? In which case, why all have the same uniform? Because I think it's really weakening his USP, is what I'm saying. Uh, my answers to you are probably, and I don't know. Oh, okay, well, PJ, <laughs> honestly, why didn't you do your research about Killer Shark? Because I'm very tired. One thing I will say is, this panel is the panel that appears in the DC Encyclopedia are uh, released in 2004 edition uh, of the entry into King Shark, uh, Killer Shark rather, although they have wisely perhaps cut out the two extra shark men okay. standing next to him, which just adds to my confusion basically. But apparently the, these guys are, are getting the weapons so they can take out the Black Hawks 
I guess they've fought the Blackhawks a few times. We will have to assume, yes. And uh, However, they are interrupted by Flash, Green Lantern and Black Canary, who um, they've been working on their, their banter, their, their superhero banter. They, 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 they make a joke about it, making a joke, and then it hurts when we laugh. And yes, A for effort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is one of those things that confuses me a little bit, though, and how Green Lantern's powers aren't all entirely always consistent because he's carrying the Flash in, the Flash with his yellow boots and belt. And it's like, hmm. Well, he's, he, I mean, like, maybe he's carrying the red bits of him. <laughs> and you know yeah. I, I, I never really know entirely how that works like because there's there's an issue of Green Lantern from late 60s maybe uh, which no sorry an issue of the Flash from the late 60s where there's a bunch of Green Lantern imposters running around and Flash tries to team up with the real Green Lantern to take them down but he realises he's teamed up with one of the imposters and the imposter's trying to trick him, but Flash is like, nope, I was onto you from the start because you created a green road and I was able to run on it with my yellow boots. Ah. Ah. But honestly, like, how many times in the in the dream pairing of Flash and Green Lantern have has, I don't know, Barry run on a green construct created by Hal? Like, surely. Probably too many surely <laughs> unless, I mean, it, unless it's important to the plot that he can't i mean look it's fine when you've got kyle and wally you know it's a better yeah, kyle ring. doesn't have the yellow wings yeah they fixed it at that point but yeah pj you know i'd never thought about that <laughs> and frankly also could hal make a green construct and then cover the construct in mud for example uh and then it would it would presumably Presumably function fine against something yellow? Um, probably. Probably. You see, why aren't I a Green Lantern? I, I'd but have this, is, this is one of those things where this is why I can't get too annoyed about continuity errors in comics anymore, because they happen all the time. <laughs> yes. And no. it's just like, there's no point expending your energy and focusing on them. If you want to come mm. up with a reason why it's not a continuity error, great. And some of that can be a lot of fun, that theorizing. Well, actually, that can work if we say this. Cool. You can get good stories out of doing that as well, can't you, Kurt Busiek? And But I just, there's there's no point worrying about it. If it's a continuity error and for you it means, oh, that story doesn't count. I'm like, I enjoyed the story. Let me just have it. And I don't care about that continuity error. Someone will write a whole comic about why it wasn't a continuity error in 20 years' time anyway. Well, you see, I'm... You know, you asked and answered PJ because I, I didn't even think about Flash's books until you brought it up. Um, and also, nice of you to reference Kurt Busiek because I think Kurt Busiek has made a very powerful career for himself out of being the world's the world's editor, basically. Yep. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, t- going in and tidying up after everyone afterwards. Yeah, well. <laughs> and probably for writing the greatest Kang the Conqueror story ever. I mean, I still get torn between his and Roger Stern's, but yeah, mm. they're both very good. Um, well, I, uh, I'm going to segue, PJ. I'll tell you what isn't very good. It's how Killer... Wait, no, I keep... What, I want to call him King Shark. No, how Killer Shark, TM, and the <laughs> the outrageous Sharklings respond is that they all um, open fire and uh, shoot at our heroes. And... 
we think perhaps that Black Canary is going to be hit, but it's only an after image because Flash has carried her out of the way. Yeah, but she's not happy about this. She's he asks if she's okay, and she says, "Okay, I had my sonic blast completely ready. This is the ninth time the men on this team have gone out of their way to protect me. I have one request: knock it off." Uh, and um, yeah, um, Flash uh, says okay, you know, gets the message, and um, him and Hal are effectively drawing lots as to who's going to go get the police. And um, yeah, the tiger sharks are. No, God's sake. The killer sharks are being loaded onto a police van in the next panel, while um, uh, Flash and and GL continue to apologise to Black Canary. Yeah, she calls them chauvinist dorks, which I love because <laughs> Flash is a dork. Yes, he is. <laughs> no, he is. He is. Barry Bless Allen him. is such a dork, and I love it. Uh, I feel like. This this book, JLA Year One, gives Barry Allen more of a personality than he had in like thirty years of Flash comics. To be fair, yeah, and and I, and I know that you and I are obviously, you know, we're we're coloured by our love of the the dream Flash and Green Lantern pairing of uh, uh, Kyle and Wally, um, but at the same time, you know, I I I just I was never there. I never had the emotional connection. I I didn't spend years with Barry or Hal and. Yeah, I have to say, like, the time I have spent with Barry, I, you know, he's no Wally to me. You know, I don't yeah. I don't find him massively engaging. But I, I, I would say, and I agree, PJ, I think this story goes a long way to make him likable, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's the problem with Barry Allen. He wasn't an interesting character. Hal Jordan at least had a personality. Mm. But Barry Allen, you, if someone asked you what was his defining characteristic as a person, he was like, uh running fast he was a police scientist that's all i got and it wasn't until he died that he became interesting and then obviously stories like this that go back to the past and sort of tell talk about him with a more modern sensibility give him more of a personality that is distinct from wally's just as Hal's was always distinct from kyle's and then they bring barry back from the dead and basically make him wally yeah it's just those are my issues with it barry should have if Barry had more of a personality, he wouldn't have been killed off, and he should have stayed dead. There yeah. we go. I've said it. Yeah. No, it's true. It's like uh, it's like Charles Xavier said to Magneto in the closing pages of uh, Grant Morrison's run on New X Men, where he said something to the effect of, "The best thing you ever did was die, because <laughs> in death you became a symbol." And uh, yeah, there we go. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, Hal, uh, having a personality, is is very keen to flex it on camera. So of course he's just very quickly becoming the PR guy for the Justice League. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love this moment. The news news crew walk out to him, and it's it's a, it's a lady doing the news reporting, and she says, "As the JLA spokesman, can you spare a few words for the press?" And Al says, I think I can squeeze you into my schedule. And you just get this lovely moment of Black Canary rolling her eyes and looking upwards, a like, big surprise. And Barry just sort of going, what, a spokesman? What? what? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, um, Black Canary says, you know, maybe we should just change our names to the Green Lantern Corps. Um, which I'm embarrassed to say, except I was I was very late in life when I realised that's meant to be pronounced Corps and not Corpse. Like, yeah. embarrassingly late in life. Oh, it's not spelled Corps. It's a stupid word. <laughs> 
and um, yeah, and 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 I think Barry's he's a late he's generally a laid back guy. He's finding it quite hard to be annoyed about it. But he he says he finds it more amusing than irritating. Yeah, <laughs> and he says, of course, well, how we'll get all the attention. He is the prettiest member of the team. <laughs> And Black Canary says, well, you've got me there. He is cute. And Barry's like, well, I was joking. I'll take your word for it. Um, yeah, and uh, da, 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 da. Um, how, you know, casually mentions that, uh, yes, of course, we've been targeted by a criminal group named Locus, but, you know, no, no, we're fine. You know, this is all part of the dance of being superhero. Um, and, uh, yeah, he just um, makes... You know, Canary's like, well, you, you're really not worried, are you? He's like, well, no, no. Um, uh, I can handle... She says, you know, is there anything you can't handle with that ring? And he says, well, it's only as good as I am. So make of that what you will. And, um, you know, in the meantime, we can all watch each other's backs. So, yeah. And then they, they head in to Cord Industries Lab and Barry opens the door for Black Canary and says, after you, and she just says, stop doing that. And, uh, you know, never missing a beat, uh, Hal is flirting with the receptionists, and um, they uh, they find their way to the lab of Ted Cord. But this is very much not the Ted Cord we know and love. Yeah, kind of like uh, college-y, uh, kind of like, you know, messy lab. I love I love the fact that he's got lots of like um like uh microbug uh blue beetley oh, blue beetley kind of drones flying about the room. I think that's very cute. Yeah, but also one that looks like the uh the owl ship from Watchmen. Oh, you're which, right. Uh, which is fun because obviously Night Owl was Blue Beetle. Oh, PJ. Nicely done. Yes, I didn't even spot that. And uh yeah, he just, you know, he's got long hair. Looks kind of like, uh, you know, pretty laid back, like a shaggy kind of character. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, Barry uh, says, oh, wow, you know, but he's a bit of a lab nerd. He's like, oh, you've got the new LexCorp spectrograph. Uh, to which Black Canary is like, hmm, what an odd thing for a superhero to know about. You know? <laughs> yeah. He, he may have revealed something about himself there. <laughs> and then Black Canary says uh, Simon Carr said you had a security system for us and this is fun and this feels very Ted Cord as well he thinks whoa she's talking to me now's your chance Ted say something cool and charming impressive with your brain here goes and he just goes it's big thinks, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's funny isn't it like thought bubbles have kind of gone out of fashion a bit in comics as a, as a way of like um detailing an internal dialogue yeah. uh, and I think when used correctly they, they can be very funny I think I like this a lot yeah yeah it's great I miss Thorn Bubbles I know and we're talking probably about 10 years ago now Bendis tried to bring You're him back gonna... in Mighty Avengers but that was he went too too far with it it wasn't quite it didn't quite work I knew you were going to bring up that that story yeah um yeah I get chills thinking about that yeah <laughs> Somebody, somebody told Bendis there's a way of getting twice as much dialogue into a panel, and uh, he <laughs> ran with it. Um, but uh, yeah, they said, "Oh well, it's not. It doesn't matter if this machine's big. Green Lantern can handle anything." And sadly, it's yellow. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, Canary's like, anything, anything at all? And Hal's like, anything? At, and then he sees it and goes, oh, it's it's very yellow. <laughs> <laughs> um, thankfully, Wall- uh, it's Wally, I was going to say Wally. Thankfully, Barry is an astute fellow. So in the blink of an eye, he paints the whole thing blue. Uh so uh, so Hal can carry it away without revealing his weakness. Yeah, he just says to Ted, does it have to be yellow? Because I have another colour in mind. And then as they fly off, Hal thanks him for the save. And Barry just says, well, so the ring doesn't work on yellow. No problem. Have paintbrush, we'll travel. <laughs> uh, and as, they, uh, as the three of them rise into the sky, um, uh, a young Ted Cord looks up at the stars, the stars, the skies, and goes... Wow, screw the family business. I want to be I want to be one of those guys. Oh, Ted, I don't think you'll ever make it. One thing I do like about cuz obviously, you know, in the pantheon of DC superheroes, there's perhaps room for only one non-powered, you know, kind of technical genius. Um, but I like I've always liked Blue Beetle for not being Batman. Yes. He, he feels very human. He's just a dude with a bunch of gadgets trying his best. One of my favourite moments, and we, which we've already seen, is in World War Three when he admits he's wearing a girdle <laughs> to fit back into his costume. <laughs> and it's so funny. There's something about the, um, I don't know, call it the owl ship or or call it the. Is there a name for his blue his beetle ship? I forget. It's the bug. The bug. It's probably just the bug. Can't isn't remember. It? Yeah. But there's something that it's giving me a different kind of trope energy than say the Batmobile. It's got real kind of action figure vibes. Like um even just in Watchmen, you know, where, you know, Night Owl has his kind of Arctic adventurer suit, you know. That feels very Saturday morning and I like that. Yeah. Um but yeah, so we cut to Rhode Island, PJ, and the cave that the League hang out in. Which is not very glamorous, I have to say. Yet. Yet. Give it time. Early days. Mm. Yeah, but Simon Carr and Aquaman are stood there with the uh, the inert body of the alien that's been returned to them by the army after their research, which is in some kind of either force field or big yellow glass dome thing. <laughs> and Simon Carr says, well, maybe this can be the first exhibit in your trophy room. And Aquaman's like, I don't understand what you're saying. The, um, I, I mean, I, I guess you... you, you... You love the the base you end up living in, but um, I don't know. I feel I feel like it's very humble humble origins for a team that will eventually live on the moon. Yeah, it's, they started in a cave and then they ended up in a big technologically advanced house on the moon. Uh, yeah, and uh, so uh, you know, Aquaman talks to um, uh, Simon, Simon Carr, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he talks to Carr, you know, Carr there mysterious liaison to their mysterious kind of investor you know he's basically saying like you know what why what what's your interest in doing all this and um and he's like well look you know i you know i'm i'm merely working on behalf of a very wealthy man who wants to help you and um his motives are pure i believe green lantern's ring scan proved i was honest when i said so so there we go um he can be a lie detector yeah um and uh yeah and as he's about to show aquaman to his room um um a boy a man falls out of the ceiling 
And Aquaman just says, may I help you? He says, jacuzzi? And Aquaman says, no, Aquaman. <laughs> He's basically offering him a jacuzzi. And he says, but I can get you a picture phone in your hot tub. And Aquaman says, do I want that? He's like, who and it wouldn't? turns out this is Snapper Car. Yes. The so- 60s was the Justice League's boy sidekick. They're Rick Jones, effectively. They're Rick Jones. And if you'd been paying attention uh, to... Um, you know, Simon Carr's uh, surname, you may have seen this coming, but this is the connection. Uh, and, it, and it, you know, it, it, as a way of weaving an old character in, it works fine. Yeah, he's like, yeah. look, this is my nephew. You inherit him, basically. <laughs> he's going to be your mechanic and electrician. Yeah, and I'd say, I'd say the only uh, weird thing, perhaps, is that he's kind of fitting a similar mould in the story as Ted Cord. Yes. I could see yeah. an alternate version of this story where it's just Ted Cord who's hanging around fixing all their machines. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I like Snapper. I, I I do have a soft spot for him. Again, mostly because of this book. Um, but yeah, I think he's a lot of fun. Didn't he, in one of the continuities, eventually gain superpowers? I think so. I think he sort of Jimmy olsen a bit and... He could Not, te- teleport, I believe, by clicking, yeah. his, snapping his his uh, fingers. I should say. Yeah, because of course he's called Snapper because he just he does snap his fingers a lot. Um, and um, you know, uh, Jean is here, and uh, he has a uh, a whole box of um, well, communicator devices, basically little cool membership badges, which is very cool. Like, yeah. uh, if I was in a superhero team, yes, I I would either want one of these or um, the Avengers uh, security card that uh, they had in the Busick Perez run. Oh, uh, that, that predates the Busick Perez run. Oh, well, does actually. it? Yeah, yeah. Ah, they had like a little screen in them, didn't they? Like, you yeah. could talk to people. Yeah, I think that started in the early 90s in Avengers. Isn't it kind of weird that we live in an age where, obviously, smartphones have been a thing forever... Uh, we can video call people at will. Uh, you know, we're we're recording this um, miles apart, PJ, through the wonders of the internet, and yet none of that is as magical to me as a badge that would allow me to talk to people by tapping. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's the Star Trek thing, the com badge, I isn't know. it? It's so weird. Or the and and yeah, I like the Avengers card as well. I like how much weight that carried because even in like nineties X Men comics, Beast was occasionally pull out his Avengers membership card just to sort of. If people, people in authority, the police or someone were giving him a hard oh, yeah. time, he'd say, yeah, well, actually, this gives me authority, even yes. though he wasn't an active member. I also like the idea that it may have doubled as a, as a credit card. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the whole team are on site now. You know, um, the others have arrived with um, presumably the big security device they, built, uh, they took from Ted. And uh, Flash is like, uh, hey, don't worry, guys. You know, I'll I'll finish decorating this place in the blink of an eye. To which Green Lantern is like, "No, no, 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 no. We're all gonna we're all gonna live and work here. We should all we should all put some sweat and tears into it, basically." Yeah, which you know is is fair. It's I a think. fair point. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So they all go off to to get the place ship shape. Aquaman's screwing in a light bulb and he shatters it. And Black Arrow just tells him to be gentle, and he says, "Well, I never know my own strength out of water." And then Hal says, you know what would help? A bulb wrench. And Aquaman goes off to find a bulb wrench. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, you know, or, or you know, they could have they could have sent him for you know a long wait or a, a left-handed <laughs> ruler, um, and you know, as he leaves, Black Canary's like, "Ah, oh, well, that was a bit mean, but it was funny." And Hal's like, "Yeah, you know, maybe maybe this will help him loosen up a bit." You know, he he yeah. still has, he's still not comfortable around us yet. Yeah, yeah, and, and he says he'll laugh when he gets the joke, and then he'll probably retaliate with an army of lobsters. Uh, and Hal makes a big green uh, vacuum cleaner to um, tidy up all the broken glass as um, Black Canary very astutely points out that um, his ring won't work on yellow, will it? She she spotted that weakness a mile away, despite them trying to cover for it. Yeah, and, and she asks what the story is with the ring, where did it come from? She says, I know we're not giving out real names, but, you know, tell me something. And we get a lovely panel flashback of Hal... Hal's origin, finding Abin Sir's crashed spaceship and, and the dying Green Lantern, as he basically gives an abridged version of what the Green Lantern core are and, and where he got the ring from. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, Black Canary brings up the JSA again, because, honestly, like I know it's stupid, I had almost forgotten for a moment that, yes, there was a previous... Green Lantern, which of course I knew. I don't know why that fell out of my brain. Um, oh god, I get the names confused. PJ Alan, Alan Scott. There we go. Alan got Scott. It. Alan Scott. Jay Garrick. Ted Knight. Uh, Wildcat. Wildcat. Ted, Ted Grant. Grant. Yes. That's that's a problem. Too many similar. No. Va- no. Yes. Ted, yeah. Ted Knight was Starman. Yes. Wait, was that Ted or? Yeah, that feels. Yeah, Knight. Night Industries or whatever or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, um, yeah, in bringing up uh, in bringing up JSA, uh, Green Lantern's like, oh, yeah, yeah, your mum was the Black Canary of the old Justice Society. Man, I used to have the biggest crush on her when I was a kid. Uh, and he goes, and she's like, really? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> I guess I just have a real thing for blondes. <laughs> and she just gives him a look and walks off. And Hal is understandably confused. He's like, "What? What did I say?" To be honest, like the greatest superpower uh, on the team may be Black Canary's ability to not get the sweatiest head in the world from wearing a wig twenty four seven. I mean, it's it's probably a technologically advanced superhero wig. It probably is actually. Yeah, it must have some amazing like kind of um, toupee glue, kind of keeping it in pay- in place. Yeah. Um, but PJ, um, we haven't had a lot of Jean in this issue, so him and Flash are in the library, I guess. Yeah, they've they've recently finished building their IKEA bookshelves, and as Jean asks Flash if he's noticed anyone strange watching him while in his civilian identity, Flash gets all the books put on the shelf. In like between the words "do" and "you," as in "no," why do you ask? And Jean says he's just curious. To be fair, though, that's a hell of a <coughs> hell of a leading hell of a leading question. I, I yes. would be alarmed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and Snapper comes in on board, and he's like, "Hey, hey, Daddy O, hey, buddy, why why are we why are you squares bothering with books? This is the era of computers." And uh, Barry's like, "Well, you know, they're fine, I guess, if you've got the time." <laughs> so they have um. They have a race, basically, to, to see who can get to Wikipedia first. Yeah, so 
Snapper says, all right, we'll go. Whoever gets the data first on Ohm's Law. And he says, ready, go. And as he says, go, the book is in front of his face. And he's like, scow, that was fast. <laughs> yeah, piao, boom. <laughs> Daddy-o. I'm running out of cool, cool swinging things to say. Um, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't try too hard. I just keep resorting to Daddy-o. <laughs> um, yeah, and, um, you know, continuing the trend, we realise that this is kind of a backdoor origin story for the team. Mm. So uh, Aquaman asks Flash about his origins and he he tells him. So, and um, I guess to some extent we get a, a little bit of an origin for Aquaman because, uh, you know, he says to some extent, you know, like, how do you make your living? He's like, I don't make anything. I live in the water, you know, uh, and I can only be out of the water for about an hour, but that's fine. That's where I live. Yeah, and Flash asks if there are any more like him, and, and Aquaman just pauses and says, "Not that he's aware of." Is that still how how long was that a going thing that Aquaman couldn't be out of the water for very long? I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm also not sure how quickly he discovered his heritage and and that he was king of Atlantis. Because <laughs> hmm. we know um, in the Morrison JLA run that. We we don't see well we don't really see much of it but it's definitely referenced that Aquaman has a like a saltwater tank like on mm. that could just be for comfort rather than say you know I will die if I don't take a regular dip sort of thing yeah yeah Aquaman with his cool long hair beard hook hand and metal vest uh, <laughs> that is the superior look for the character isn't it it is indeed although I and I, I say this in the nicest possible way he must stink. <laughs> Like I don't you know, know, he's he's basically having having baths all the time. So. I suppose so. Yeah, would he not sell smell like just a little briny like all the time? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. Actually, actually, PJ confirmed by the fact that um, Connor Green Arrow was able to smell Ocean Master in That's the dark. True. Yeah, because he smelled of brine. That is true. Yeah. Well remembered. Good point. Factoid. Although, of course, he's a bad guy, so his his smell is probably it has to be worse. Presumably. Yeah, he probably you know Aquaman uses deodorant. I bet Ocean Master doesn't. <laughs> I bet Aquaman takes like a I don't know um, a sea urchin and rubs it rubs it in his pits. That's like a na- nature's <laughs> nature's deodorant, perhaps. Is it? Hey, I don't live under the ocean, PJ. You know, <laughs> I can't say this with authority. Um, <laughs> But um, Jean and Aquaman find a bit of kinship because, of course, um, they are both, in a way, the last of their the last of their race. Yeah, and Aquaman asks Jean what's brought him to Earth, and and Jean says it was an accident. Ex- you know, his origin: scientist using an experimental teleporter. He's been here for a, lo- a long time now, and still sometimes he struggles to adapt. And um, <coughs> Barry just smiles, you know, because. He sees their kind of kinship developing. And I think he's yeah. smart enough to realise that's good. They both need someone to anchor them to the team. Yeah. Yeah, and Aquaman says that he's happy that Jean doesn't have a problem with his muttering. And Jean says, well, I'm a good listener. And then Aquaman asks, have you seen the Balbrench? And Jean just says, ah, you've been speaking to Green Lantern, haven't you? <laughs> it's also, it's, it's a slight shame to me. And I, I think there just wasn't time or space in in the pages of JLA, but... It would have been a nice thing to see just in general in the pages of a Justice League book that, say, Aquaman and Jean were really good friends, you know, because uh, they do have a kinship, which 
is easy to... They're both kind of outsiders in a way, which is easy to forget about. Yeah, and also, in once you get to Morrison's JLA, the only two original members still on the team. Oh, God, you're right, yes, which is why... Yes, which is, again, just one of the weirdest quirks of the Justice League history that I keep coming mm. back to. I think it's why, of course, at the end of Rock of Ages, isn't it like um, Jean and Aquaman and Superman who kind of have the authority to disband the team? Yeah. Yeah, because, well, I guess you couldn't not include Superman, basically. Well, Superman is the chairman of that version of the JLA. He is the team leader. But then, yeah, Jean and Aquaman presumably have the you know, founder member status. Mm. <clears throat> Which I seem to remember Iron Man pulling at one point in the 90s. In yes. The, yes. Yeah, in the Avengers book, the founders had authority, but Captain America was also given founder status. Yes, I think that's fair, isn't it? Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to see the Hulk kind of just rock up and exert that authority occasionally. That would be nice. <laughs> Um, and of course, we're kind of learning that Black Canary is a bit of a dark detective of the night because she she's very astute and she has already figured out that Hal can't affect Yellow. And she's figured that correctly that Barry is a chemist of sorts. Yeah, she overheard him talking to Aquaman, but she's like, I thought you were a scientist earlier. And Barry says, yeah, sort of, but keep it to yourself. But I'm a, I'm a forensics cop and then he asks is she a navy seal or a firefighter and she says I'd, I'd rather not say yeah um and uh you know I, I i again kind of tying into this kind of feel it these feelings of inadequacy that black canary's dealing with or maybe feeling like um in the shadow of others in her life um but again we bring up the jsa and um you know Barry's like, oh man, do you know Jay Garrick? You know, because I guess, is it, would they have met, you know? No, I don't think they have at this point because Flash here says, there's so much I could learn from him, but he retired so suddenly and no one knows where he's gone. And even Black Canary says, no, that's that's a mystery. We don't know. I don't know what Jay Garrick's status was at this point or when he comes back mm. in this continuity. Um, obviously in in pre-crisis there was the flash of two worlds the, that classic issue where barry meets jay but travels to jay's to earth too yeah first time that happens and that that amazing cover of them both running either side <laughs> of a brick wall that i just absolutely love i mean it's it, it's iconic for a reason like it's set yeah. a it's set a precedent that i guess you don't if you don't start with that you don't get say spider-man across the spider-verse you know yeah true yeah it all began there um but yes, yeah, so, but I guess of course the interesting thing is, and DC has always done this a lot more, the idea of like legacy heroes or the idea of a a name being something you could inherit or kind of just adopt in a way. So I, I guess like from this, you know, Barry is a guy who's only recently gained powers. They are speed based. So I guess in his eyes, it's like a kind of like a tribute in a way, like to mm. just take the name of a of a hero who was quite well regarded and honoured. Well, in the original continuity version, he was a fan of The Flash. He read Flash comics. Ah. And that's why he took the name. And I, I think that, you know, in this version, he's just a fan of the man. He, he's always been a Flash fan, so when he gets super speed, he takes up the mantle. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, I, and I guess, of course, in time, I guess Barry 
Barry's legacy ends up eclipsing Jay's to yeah. some extent. Like he he kind of becomes certainly in the eyes of the, the in-universe world and the wider world just the the definitive Flash. Um, yeah, which is a shame because you know. Wally, Wally, Wally. Um, but yeah, but we can we can to some extent see, and this goes back to what you were saying about um, his personality, PJ. But we can see how in this dynamic and in this story, he's very much um, like a, a kind of calming, balancing presence on the team. Yes, because the yeah. um, uh, Black Canary asks him what he thinks about Hal. Yeah, and Barry says that he's a bit headstrong, but then I'm pretty methodical, so I'm not really a good judge. Um, but he seems like a good guy. Yeah. And um, they seem to be bonding. Um, you know, Black Canary's like, you know, well, you know, my dad was in law enforcement and um, I like cops. And uh, <laughs> Barry's like, oh, um, oh, oh, gosh. Uh, is technically engaged. Yeah. Uh, there's no technically about it. He is engaged. So Yeah, uh, yeah he's engaged to Iris at the moment. Yeah. So, uh, oh, man, I, this is where I get my flashes confused. I was going to say Linda. But no, Iris. That's Wally, yeah. I know. Sorry, Wally's always on my mind. Uh, anyway, thankfully, Hal's here to ruin the mood <laughs> and, uh, yeah, make Black Canary leave. Yeah, I love this. He he flies in and asks, asks how things are going and she just walks away, face like thunder, and Hal, again, utterly baffled, is, what did I say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in all fairness, he probably would have no way of knowing, but... He's also not the most tactful person on the on the planet, uh, or maybe in the galaxy. Who knows? Um, so yeah, he thanks Barry for you know helping him save face with the machine. Uh, little realizing, of course, that she's already well. I don't know. I guess she's complete. She's already guessed that, of course, the machine doesn't. That yellow doesn't work. Yeah, I think Hal just doesn't like to be shown up in front of anybody, though. No, true, true. So he is grateful to Barry. And uh, he also asks, this is where we're getting into the kind of like, uh, oh, the love triangle developing. Uh, he also asks whether Barry thinks that uh, Black Canary likes him. Ooh. And Barry says, well, why wouldn't she? Uh, yeah, and also an interesting thing, because they start talking about the JSA here, but an interesting thing from Barry to say that, you know, there's some doubt as to whether his powers will be a permanent thing. You know, like, uh, which is something I hadn't even crossed my mind. Like, he's only recently gained the powers and he's, he's, he's scared he'll lose them, perhaps. Yeah, he says he has no idea how long they're going to last and he does worry about that. But then he says, but then I think of all the JSA members who are still alive after years and years and I wonder if we'll be that lucky. And you get a nice close-up of the two of them of Hal saying, a life of adventure keeps you vital, my friend. You know what? I predict the two of us are going to live to a ripe old age. They were both dead at this point. Yes, this is the... Uh... <coughs> oh, there's a. I heard somebody use a word for it once, and I, I can't for the life of me remember it. But this is the weird kind of retro foreshadowing or something yeah. like that, which is, yeah, which is something you can do, uh, with, particularly with a serialized, long-running art form like this. So, um, of course, it doesn't work anymore because they're both alive again now. So, uh, well, I don't think this story exists anymore anyway. No, so, I don't think so either. Yeah, so it's, don't worry. It's about confusing. It. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <clears throat> Uh, so, yeah, we cut to uh, Aquaman and Jean again. And uh, Aquaman is annoyed because he's like, look, okay, I hung out with Flash once and now everyone calls me a superhero. And he's like, and they even call me Aquaman. It's like, it's annoying, okay? I'm not a superhero. I'm just a dude 
I think he even said in a previous issue, I'm not even super. This is just normal for me, you yeah. know. Uh, so, yeah, so he's he's frustrated by the whole thing. Yeah, but Jean says, well, you know, like you, I avoided humanity for a long time, but I've come to realise they were more accepting than I'd given them credit for. You know, some regions of the world are more relaxed, some less, but I found that after years of living in hiding, you should just be yourself around everybody. As Black Canary walks in and he says, wouldn't you agree? And she thinks about how she's not being herself. She, We get a panel of her putting her outfit on before she's put the wig on and saying, Wallflower, am I? I'll show them. And she just says, well, everyone's situation is different, John. Here's a weird question for you, PJ. I was going to say in current continuity, but not in current continuity, but... Did, did, did Black Canary was Black Canary still in canon wearing a wig in all her kind of like later appearances? No, I think it. I think she grew her hair out and dyed it. Sure, sure, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, oh, and then um, you know Aquaman is still just kind of pissed off, so kind of like storms off basically, and um, you know Jean says, "Well, he's an angry man." And yeah, I love that line. Uh, he is an angry man. <laughs> And uh, Black Canary's like, well, most men are angry about something. By the way, John, I've been meaning to thank you. Uh, and she says, for treating me as an equal in the field. To which John says, why would I not? And she says, exactly. So, yep. There we go. Good old, good old John. Um, the, uh, the league assembles in their in their meeting hall where there's a big table with the JLA logo in the middle of it. And Black Canary says, but something's missing. And she's like, oh, my crates. I forgot to unpack them. <laughs> And at super speed, he places chairs all around the table with their logos on it. Some Black Canary saying, hey, nice touch. And then Aquaman says, but why do I count six chairs? And Green Lantern points out that one of them has the Superman S logo on the back of it. And he says, Flash, what do you know that you're not telling us? Well, here's an interesting question for you, PJ, very quickly. Um, Is this the same table that the JLA are meeting around in the Morrison book. It looks the same. It's got it the same the logo. Same. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that they just rebuilt the table at some point and it gets destroyed. I have no memory of whether that's happened or not. So it is entirely possible they still have the original meeting table during the Morrison run. I mean, it, it'd be nice because, like, I guess even if it was a a, a future a future retcon, a, a retro piece of foreshadowing, both these books were coming out at the same time. Like yeah. it wouldn't have been hard for, uh, you know, Barry Kitson to look at what Howard Porter was drawing, or vice versa, and and just make it the same table. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Anyway, Why not? but I, I love this idea that Flash is like. Uh, I I thought we could maybe ask Superman to join us. Any 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 thoughts? <laughs> yeah. So so we're getting to the the um uh the pink kryptonite elephant in the room. <laughs> which is where's Superman, basically. Yeah. Um, and I kind of like the idea that, even though it's, it's still weird to me, uh, you know, this will forever just be odd to me that Superman wasn't a founding member of the League originally. <laughs> but it is interesting that, and I'm, I'm accepting this reality of seeing a, a different version of the League forming without Superman. They're up, them all being kind of powerful and accomplished in their own right but also still kind of being in awe of Superman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the conversation they have, isn't it? Like, Black Canary is less impressed because she's like, I mean, I know the Spectre, so... 
And and Hal points out, well, you know, between Jean's strength and my ring, do we need his power? But Aquaman's the one who says, well, I've met him once and I was impressed, but he seems like a man with a lot on his mind and not a lot of free time. Which is an interest. <coughs> I like that. That is an interesting and astute assessment of Superman. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and not something you hear very often. So yeah, I. Yeah. yeah. But it's nice for Aquaman is just honest about about it basically. Yeah, and Flash says, "Well, okay. I mean, I accept that we can all be nervous about this. He is Superman. So even at this early point, the modern heroes hold Superman in very high regard and." This is one of the things I was talking about, was how you feel Superman's presence throughout this book, even when he's not really around. But um, Flash says, well, what do you think? Should we try and find him? And then suddenly we get a shot of the Superman chair and there's a figure in it, blue arms, red cape, saying maybe, or, and Superman is sat in the chair saying maybe he could find you. And Barry Kitson draws the hell out of Superman. I, he's a properly powerful Superman. I was going to say the exact same thing. There's a good looking Superman basically yeah and everyone is scunned like everyone is completely silent they do yeah. they do not say anything mouths yeah. agape yeah as uh, this this yeah. sequence is one of my very favorite sequences in this whole book because there's basically silence now for a for loads of panels so you get another shot from behind of the league looking stunned and then a close-up of superman and then another close-up where Superman's starting to look really weird and he's turning a bit green, his eyes are going red, and then it turns out it's Jean in the next panel. And then there's just another panel of the League staring, mouths open, another panel of the Jean sat there, them all just staring at him, and then we get close-ups of Jean as he turns into a cartoon character and just goes, you're very, very quiet. <laughs> and then everyone bursts out laughing. Yeah, and Hal says, you had me, you really had me. And then there's requests for him to do other characters. Black Canary asks for Yoda, Flash asks for Batman. But I love that sequence. It's so playful from Jean and so whimsical and it's just delightful. And also, I think, PJ, the most telling piece of telling piece of information here is that Yoda exists in this world. Yes. <laughs> so we know, we know the story must be happening uh, post um, Empire Strikes Back. 1980. Yeah. So I think I I still maintain this story is sort of late 80s. Sure. Yeah. No. It just there we go. It's uh, uh, it's nice to see Jean having fun or being allowed to have fun, you know, and um, and also it's it's a really it's a really um nice thing which I think this series does um is gradually showing just how many powers Jean has, and of course the fact that his teammates don't know about them all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And, and of course, it's just so obvious, but they just go like, wait, you're a shapeshifter? He's like, yeah, you know, um, uh, I, I guess it hasn't come up yet. Yeah. I mean, even though he did shapeshift in the battle in the last issue, I'm getting, you know, he was fighting, I can't remember which one he was fighting, Clayface, I think, alone. So it's entirely possible in the heat of the moment, no one else saw it. Yeah, no, it's a fair point. Um, and also it's a nice thing where um, Aquaman is like, it was funny. I didn't get it, but it was still funny. <laughs> yeah. And then there's there's more joking around, because even Hal says, you know, it was worth being startled, and Black Canary says, how many more powers have you got? You're a regular. And Flash goes, Spectre, Starman, Hourman. And she says, don't make me hurt you. Um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, so they're bonding, you know, they're bonding. And, uh, you know... Uh, Jean is like, well, look, you know, the name Jean Jean's, uh, 
It's a phonetic representation of my Martian designation. To which Hal says, well, it's tough to spell, but a cinch to pronounce. Which reminds me, I'm getting tired of saying Black Canary all the time. Can't I call you something shorter? So, yeah, they're on that kind of... Um, well, I don't know. They're on the cusp of revealing something about themselves, PJ. Yeah, and she says, what, like Green Lantern's not a mouthful? And Flash says, we well, can't get much shorter than Flash, but even that's a little formal. And then says to Hal, what, what do your friends call you, Lantern or GL? And Hal is about, he reaches up, he's about to take his mask off, and he says, oh, hell, just call me, before Aquaman butts in and says, Bulbrench. And then basically goes off about how... Is he speaking loud enough for them? He doesn't like being mocked. He came here to be accepted. He doesn't want to be reminded that he's different and that he doesn't understand their culture, but his understanding is if they're a team, they need to support each other, not undercut each other, no matter how playfully. And then he asks if he has that wrong. And Flash just says, no, you don't, and whispers to Hal to apologize. Hal does briefly protest. Flash just says again, apologize, and then Hal does. He says, you're not wrong, Aquaman. A lighter mood creates a team spirit, but not when it alienates. And again, a nice little sequence, I think. Yeah. Very much in character for everybody as well. But of course, um, it even, even though Hal apologises and realises he was out of turn, it does kind of kill the moment for what could have been a big moment of personal re- revelation for all of them because he doesn't reveal his name. He says, look, just... Call me GL. GL is yeah. fine. Uh, you know, and it's getting late. We all have real lives. Maybe we maybe we should be getting back to them. Yeah. And Flash says, I have an early morning. As does Black Canary, and Aquaman says he'll be in touch. And as they leave, Flash thanks Jean for the laugh and says, Who knew Martians had a sense of humour? And leaves Jean alone in the cave. Yeah, and you know, Jean is are left alone with the remaining Appalachian uh, being, which is in its big kind of dome or force field. And we just get an extended page of him staring at it um, with his amazing pirate boots and cape. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. And then he, he flies up and phases through the rock wall and then he's yeah. gone. And, and that's where we get the credits. Mark Wade, Brian Augustin, Barry Kitts, and storytellers, Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahy, colorist, Peter Tomasi, editor, and the end of the issue. Yeah. The end. And it's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's a, I, I like it as an issue. Like, nothing really happens. It's entirely character-driven. It's yeah. nice. Yeah. I think it's one of my favorite issues of the whole 12-issue series because it is just the the league getting to know each other and bonding and you get a brief action scene at the beginning with the killer sharks but it's over before it really starts oh it's and barely a that, fight yeah yeah exactly and after that it is literally just the league becoming the league and becoming closer and there are so many lovely moments the the hal barry conversation about living to a ripe old age which at the time was very funny <laughs> uh jean superman gag is one of my favorite jean moments of all time i think <laughs> and yeah, it's 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 a lovely issue. It's a lovely issue that shows that Mark Wade and Brian Augustin just, just they just know these characters. I um I feel I'm gonna have to purchase and reread um uh Grant Morrison's Animal Man at some point because I know I've only read it for once. I did really like it. I know Jean pops up in that, and it's also this kind of 
it's it's slightly more light-hearted Jean, like an era where he could make jokes and be a bit kind of like brighter. So yeah, I I just I don't know. I I think it's nice to see. I don't know. It's nice to see Jean just bonding rather than being just for kind of. I don't know. Just kind of perfect, distant presence on the team. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Gives him a personality, which is nice. Yeah. Then it it gives them all personalities. Like even you know, arguably Hal Diner and and Aquaman already had them, but this it is a very different Aquaman to the one we know or knew in the comics at this point in in the main JLA series. But you can see how he would become the character we already knew. And just giving Barry a personality full stop. Is, and a really nice one. One that differentiates him from Wally, but makes you like the character. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's um, you can totally see how this could be the same Aquaman. But, you mm. know, with the the distance and the, you know, personal discovery of his lineage. Like, yeah, like this is a... a, a, a yeah, I like I like that Aquaman gets to be the team's resident grump, but he's also, you know, it's coming from a good place. Like, you know, he 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 doesn't understand certain things. He's learning, but he's he's honest, you know. And it's, it's some of the more kind of like the nuance of human interaction kind of escapes him sometimes. But he's still like fundamentally very true to himself, which I which I like as a character. And then you know he becomes more of a lovable asshole in in the later in the later books as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, it's it's. I love a good comic that just gives you a nice bit of character work among these these tight wearing weirdos, <laughs> <laughs> and this is a great example. It's um it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's one of the weird opportunities you only really get in comics, and and. Particularly when you, as a, as a creative team, you care enough to to do a retro piece, you know, to to try and like retell something. Because just in the same way that if you were inventing the Avengers from scratch today, as as we saw in the movies, you would never make up a team of Hulk, Ant Man, Wasp, Thor, and Iron Man. It's a really weird lineup. Uh, it kind of like this. Like I don't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't assemble a league out of these five characters nowadays. Yeah. And but because this is the story they're telling and these are the characters they're working with, um, again, Wade and Brian Augustine are going out of their way to flex these personalities to make you care about them. Like, yeah, it's not the one these are not the characters I would have chosen. But at the same time, I'm I'm really warming to them because of moments like this. It's very well done. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Agreed, and and it just makes me excited to read the rest of the... Because if they've got this good a handle on these characters and we're only on issue three, you know, what can they do with them going forward? And I know what they can do with them because I've read the rest of it, but it's still exciting to then think that we're going to get to spend time with these writers writing these characters this well. Well, yeah, and, and it's, the, it's, the slow, it's the slow pace as well, which is quite welcoming. Like, knowing that it's going to be a 12-part miniseries, and I'm thinking, like, okay, so episode one is kind of set up but it's also kind of like a group of individuals coming together you know part issue two is like okay now they're a team we've established the status quo of how they work together and we and it's very action-packed like the, the last issue was just one big fight basically and now of course with those two out of the way yeah let's have an issue where we just 
we just slow it down and let the characters breathe a bit, you know. Even little things, which of course, you know, blindingly obvious when you when you finally notice, but like, yeah, they don't know each other's origins. They don't know they don't know everyone's powers. Like they really are discovering each other at the same time as they're discovering their own limits. So Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's very yeah, it's very it's very well done. Just just good good effort team. Very, very yeah. well done, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that puts us now a quarter of the way through JLA Year One. Yes, hard to believe. Yeah, you know, we, we kind of, we, we leap forward, don't we? Um, and particularly knowing what's coming up. Um, yeah, because uh, we're going to be getting into some more kind of plot stuff, shall we say, with a capital P. So Yes. Yes, yeah. all very exciting. Oh, very exciting indeed. I, there's the, a couple of issues coming up that I'm really looking forward to. So, And my only, you know, this isn't even a criticism. My only comment would have been is that we should have taken this opportunity to combine the characters of Ted Cord and Snapper Car into a wholly original character called Ted Cord. <laughs> Snapper Cord? Snapper Cord? Oh, no, that sounds, that sounds like a very bad thing for an engineer. Like, do not snap cords. <laughs> They're probably important in some way. <laughs> if you don't know what it does, don't snap it. Oh. But yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I don't I don't like Snapper, and we're certainly going to be seeing a lot more of him. But yeah. Yes. It's just, yeah. there are, you think this is a JLA year one book, but there are so many cameos as, as, as you go. So many cameos. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, lots more besides. Proper guest star issues as well, where we're, we're going to have proper meetings with other superheroes. And quite possibly, though, a particularly unexpected team up, <laughs> I think, for this book, uh, which was my first exposure to a certain uh, group of characters, let's say, that is a lot of fun. And I'm very excited for I am for very that. excited about that, particularly because, you know, this is this is about you know comics in the time of uh, of Grant Morrison and and there's a strong connection there. So yes, there is. Yes. There is. I wonder if if Wade did that on purpose, being friends with Morrison. And, oh, surely. Yeah, surely <laughs> it would have to be. We'll have a lot to say about that when we get there. Yes, we will. Yes. we will. Yes. Uh, so, Peter, have we exhausted everything everything we we need to say about this issue? We have, uh, but not about people who have things to say because. We have had an email. We've had an email, people. I, I, said, that really, we... I said that really weird. Sorry, I said like <laughs> no. people. Yeah, people. We've had an email. Yeah, we've had an email from uh, from David Yost, which we're going to get into now. Um, it is a long email. I'm going to read through it. Uh, David, I apologise. It, it's a brilliantly thought out and, and well-written email, and it raises some excellent points, but I am going to have to trim it as we go for, for time. <laughs> Um, so apologies in advance for that, David, but we will try and cover all the key points in it. Uh, so David says, um, you know, that our most recent episode covering issue one of JLA Year One got him thinking. Uh, at several points during the episode and in previous episode, uh, you both make comments to explain elements of the issue by stating that it was the 90s as a shorthand for low quality slash high spectacle comics. This isn't just the two of you either. 90s comics are often seen through that lens and discussed as such. And people use it as a shorthand, which he fully understands what they're referring to, but he's always found it to be incredibly reductionist. So he goes on to say that Fandom tends to have a tendency, sorry, has a bad tendency toward being overly reductionist when it comes to things they love and follow. Conventional wisdom about things tends to be very surface level and overgeneralized, which isn't really a problem itself. Being a fan of something doesn't mean you have to view it 
through a college level analysis, but he often bumps up against overly generalised assessments and wants to offer a modest defence of 90s comics. Uh, so he feels like fans are a bit lazy in summing up an entire decade. I think some of it comes from the fact that, you know, while it's fine that anyone looks at comics as cheap disposable fun, he doesn't. He doesn't want to sound too snobby. Totally get that. Um, but he says that he sees comics as... Um, modern literature they're another facet of modern literature the stories told in them are affecting and full of complex characters dynamic narrative and more raw creativity than one typically finds in serious literature a list of his favorite books of all time will be made up of mostly generally accepted novels but would include more than a couple of comic book runs in it and he would not call while he wouldn't call grant morrison his favorite comic book writer he would rather refer to them as his favorite writer period um also says comics are unique in that one they're a medium in which characters and mythologies evolve and grow over decades of constant publication very little in serious literature in quotation marks has a similar dynamic and two it's typically cheaper to print a run of 10,000 issues of a comic than to publish a novel so comics can allow more experimental and fringe storytelling because of a lower financial risk so he does admit he probably analyzes comics deeper than a lot of others he takes them more seriously as works of legitimate art not to say his view is necessarily better or more accurate but just to explain why it may be different than some and why he wants to defend the 90s no and and, and i i would echo i would echo what you said pj i think this is it's, it's a it's a wonderful point well delivered so yes. yeah david genuinely thank you um <laughs> And I'm so sorry that I'm mangling it, David. It just it would take us too long to read the whole thing verbatim. So apologies where I'm stumbling over it a bit. I'm just trying to get all of your points in without taking too long over it. I hope that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but- and I think I think one one thing that's very um, one point that immediately kind of springs to mind is 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 the idea of yes, like oversimplifying an era uh, is is something we're we're all very very guilty of. I mean, we do it in music, we uh, and we certainly do it in comics, uh, when of course there's so much more nuance to it than that. Yeah. And um, I know, I know, I know, I know. I for one will will often make jokes about things being particularly. 90s and uh, and i think um for me at least that's that gives you the good you know and and the bad like um yeah. uh, I, I i do have we'll get to it at the end of the email i do have a slight rebuttal to um to us the way we we do it but we'll get into that at the end of the email it's only a slight rebuttal i'm sure we are guilty of it oh indeed there, but... indeed no and i think it would be incredibly you know reductive to you know, tar a whole you yes. know, decades worth of, of of content as as somehow not worthy. Um, you know, it's interesting. Like, you know, I I think to some extent the very fact that we're doing this podcast, I hope at least comes across as 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 an expression of our love for this era. Um, it was clearly very formative. To, to yeah. PJ and I, because this is this is the stuff which is like like a like a baby duck imprinting. Uh, this is the stuff. Uh, these these were the first glimpses of these worlds I saw. I mean, like you know, my first introduction to so many Marvel characters was um, uh, Marvel Heroes Reborn. Yes, which um, I think academically is not considered uh, an amazing display of storytelling. And yeah, I I still have such a very strong feelings for it because of the imprint it made on me. 
Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, and uh, David goes on to say that the stereotype of 90s comics is not entirely unfounded. Flash over substance, art over story, ultraviolence, pouches, etc. <laughs> were all present in the 90s. But he does say he thinks people get overly lazy because he sort of says that stereotype really only eclipsed the industry for about two years, maybe three, depending on when you want to declare its start slash end. I would say probably a little longer. I'd say it starts in 91 with X-Men 1 and all the covers there, the Jim Lee one, and probably doesn't really end until after Heroes Reborn. It's really interesting. Well, yes, that's the funny thing, isn't it? Because, like, uh, Heroes Return, um, the Busick-Perez run on Avengers, um, and... Uh, Busick and Sean Chen on Iron Man, Wade and Garney on Captain America. Uh, Those three are amazing books. On Fantastic Four. You know, these were... That was really my kind of, you know, because, again, we've talked about it before, but the way in which we would often consume comics in, in, in the 90s in the UK was through the Panini reprints, uh, this company which would take like three issues at a time of American comics, package them together, reprint them as a thicker book, if you will, still staple bound, but with a, like a cardboard cover. And then they sell them in news agents over here. Yeah. And yeah, like I, I dabbled in these around the end of Heroes Reborn. Didn't really have any idea what was going on. And then carried on through Heroes Return. And then they were like, hey, we're going to be doing, um, oh, PJ, I can't even remember what it was called. But it was like the the one I loved. It was they were collecting uh, Fantastic Four, uh, which was Claremont and Alan Davis. Um, Iron Man, which was Busick and Sean Chen. Yeah, which was a great book, that Iron Man book. And I want to say they're also collecting Incredible Hulk, which was Peter David and Adam Kubert. Yes. Which, oddly enough, was prior to the events of Heroes Return, but they were all being collected as one book. Well, they they started the Hulk with the uh, Wolverine guest starring issue, didn't they? I think so they could. Just because, yeah, it was a good place to start. But yeah, that was... So Hulk was then perennially six or seven months behind where Fantastic Four and Iron Man were. Yeah, which was a very odd choice. But like, God, I loved that stuff. Like so, mm. so much. And um, like the Peter David run on the latter days of Hulk were, were, were remarkable. Yes. Yeah, well, the whole Peter David run on the Hulk, to be honest, is superb from start to finish, I think. But um, Which is something David mentions in a moment as well. Um, but, you know, as, as I say, he says that he thinks that um, style sort of eclipsed the industry for two years. I would argue a little longer, but, you know, either way, there was other stuff being put out at the same time. Um, what David digs into here, though, is saying that we're really talking about the rise in popularity of comic book artists who were then given the creative reins of the book they worked on and forced writers to confirm to their desire for more action with less substance. And the trend then went supernova with those then artists forming Image Comics in 1992. And then a massive boom and near implosion as the founders, and we all know about this, had a hard time making deadlines and finishing issues. So this is interesting. I hadn't realised this. Most of the initial Image titles failed to make it into double-digit issue numbers. Uh, David says to his memory, the only series that survived into the mid-90s was Spawn and Savage Dragon. Mm. For as much as Youngblood is held up as indicative of 90s comics, it only lasted 10 issues before fading away, but it sticks in the memory because it's so flashy and ridiculous, but it doesn't constitute what the decade's comic books were about. I agree with that. Oh, 100%. It is is funny to... 
is right to bring it up because it, it it's it's a it's maybe one of the reasons we think of the of nineties comics being the way they are is because it was an era where the economic model of comics became so completely entangled with the art that was being produced. Because, yeah. you know, as you rightly said, like the boom and near collapse of the comics industry, like image comics in its original form played a large part in that because we then got, as you say, the kind of the spectacle and, you know, the idea of variant covers and it became a a, a collector's and a, like a, a speculator's market. Yeah. And of course we see echoes of that in things like NFTs nowadays. Like, yeah. yeah why wouldn't you invest? You know, it's clearly, yeah. it's, it's, it's non-stop profit. Um, and yeah, and you know, obviously Marvel was putting out good work and questionable work just because all the publishers were, but you know, Marvel was kind of, I think, a bit adrift around that time. You know, we were yeah. at least a decade out from the movies kind of changing the world. Yeah, for sure. Well, David gives a list to contrast, like, the image boom and all those comics, 90s comics that uh, he says he would recommend people check out to if your idea of the 90s is this flashy style over substance thing. And it's Morrison's JLA, obviously. Mm-hmm. Busick's Avengers, yes. Uh, in fact, I agree with every book on this list. Um, Busick's Astro City, Kingdom Come, Marvel's, Sandman, The Invisibles, Peter David's Run on the Hulk, Batman the Long Halloween, James Robinson's Run on Starman, uh, Starman, Starman? <laughs> St- hmm. St- <laughs> Starman. Starman, yeah. St- Jeff Starman, yeah. Uh, Batman No Man's Land, Mark Wade's Run on the Flash, and James Robinson's The Golden Age. He says he could go on and on and on, um, and the list could get exhaustive, but... And include miniseries, prestige books, mainline runs, independent titles, but those are the ones he he starts his list with, and those are all amazing books that I also recommend people check out. Oh my god, yeah, I and I would, I would, I would second, I would third that um, because, like, yeah, it, I, I'm I'm listening to that list and I'm going like, well, yes, of course, I love that one, I love that one, I love that one. That was formative to me. Uh, and I'm also seeing the gaps in my because I incredibly I've never read Astro City and I feel that's a glaring omission in my collection. I really have to get on that. I've read bits of Astro City, but not enough of it. And yeah, also same, same. And and I think a, a sad part as well is, um, and I think I mentioned this in a previous issue when trying to get hold of a copy of JLA Year One, uh, and the idea that. You can't now walk into, or at least I'm I'm tarring everyone with the same brush, but like it's hard to get hold of some of these books now yeah. in physical form from a bookshop because or a comic shop because their their relevance seems to be diminishing. Yeah, which is a shame because for me it really felt like these titles, you know, the titles that David's mentioning, um, the collected editions of JLA and all these bench, you know, kind of tentpole series. This felt like the great American library. This felt like the canon of superhero comics, and I guess a few a few movies and a few retcons down the line, and and they're they're not anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it did feel like in the nineties there was you could buy a lot more older books collected as well. There were collections of books from the sixties, seventies, and eighties as well that I feel like they don't tend to put out quite so much nowadays mm. unless it's like an absolute hardback edition that only the elite can afford. Yeah. Yeah, that's the kicker, isn't it? Yeah. I do say I do think 
I I have such a soft spot for the aesthetic of the 90s. Like you mentioned, I mean, to use Youngblood as an example, I, I have a random issue of Youngblood, which I picked up in a secondhand shop years ago. It might be one of the worst single issues of comics I own. Uh, it is fascinating in itself. Um, so if that is kind of maybe like the bad example of it, uh, the flip side is I, I I kind of love Wildcats. I I love what I love what Wildcats became. I I think <laughs> I think Grifter is a is a fantastic design, mm-hmm. and um, I even have a character in my comic called App who was basically it described uh, you know before he was first brought to life by an artist as being like the 90s in comics in one person so like his <laughs> entire physiology would be the massive neck the oversized joe mad kind of kind of musculature and i that dynamism of it like i love that to bits like it's insane it's so far beyond reality but like the way some of these characters were drawn it was like they weren't wearing costumes anymore. They weren't where they weren't human beings. They were like some kind of higher race of bizarre superhero thing. Like that's the point where it kind of just became distilled into. I don't. I don't even know how to describe it. It just became such a potent mix: the look, the style, the attitude. And I and I hope now that we can we we have enough distance from it where we can. Well, the nineties are coming back, aren't they, PJ? Fashion is going round in in yes. circles. Yeah, flannel shirts are back. So, crop tops, PJ, and oh. uh, you know, yeah, I'm wearing one right now. I'm wearing one right now, and uh, <laughs> that's why that's why we don't put the camera on, folks. Uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, um, so David does go on to say that by volume, he thinks there was more quality in the nineties than the stereotype of nineties comics. Um, the you know the nineties in his mind, was when the maturity that was brought into comics in the 80s was perfected, dropping the overly grim and dark elements that poor imitators of Moore and Miller had attempted in the late 80s and early 90s, and keeping the more refined storytelling elements with a focus on character. Um, he also sees long-time and newer creators attempting to refute what would have been seen as the image philosophy. He wants to give DC a special call-out for this because he thinks that while creators at both major companies were putting out good work, uh, DC especially were doing it in the 90s and lists a couple of stories in to consider in this context now I'm not going to go into his detail on these because certainly some of these are things we've said we might look at on the podcast anyway but he mentions Death of Superman uh, and that whole run up to Reign of the Superman and how that shows you know what it's a story about what does Superman actually mean in the modern world of the 90s and has some amazing creators in it, you know, Dan Jurgens, Louise Simonson, John Bogdanove, all of whom have done amazing work in the 80s. And as David rightfully says, they don't just forget how to do that when 1990 rolls around. Um, Batman, Nightfall, up to Night's End, all of that, same. Um, I would maybe argue that Chuck Dixon did forget how to write comics in the 90s because his DC 1 million uh, issue was one of the worst things we've ever looked at on the podcast. But other than that... Um, and of course Kingdom Come which is Mark Wade's thesis on you know superheroes and the legacy characters in the 90s Uh, he also mentions Flash Return of Barry Allen uh, Emerald Twilight and of course Morrison's JLA says that Marvel maybe caved more to the popular will in the 90s but even they showed signs of thinking the short-lived fad had gone too far in their creative efforts especially in Kurt Busiek's work and so 
Yeah, he does say he thinks fandom has a lot to do with this and how fandom views things becoming sort of the popular uh, popular view. Maybe they don't feel like the pop culture is sophisticated enough to engage. Um, but yeah, he it's he does go on to say, it's ultimately not the end of the world if people want to trivialise 90s comics, but I wanted to give my argument in their defence. Other than that, keep up the great work. Really looking forward to listening to JLA Year One over the coming months and hope you both keep up the podcast now that the Morrison era has been completed. Don't worry, we will. Apologies for the novella of an email, but it's been about a year since I last wrote in, so I figured it was due. Once again, I'd like to throw in my recommendation that at some point in the future, you guys cover the six issues of the tragically short-lived Vexed, which was a Keith Giffen project that I will eternally champion, despite possibly being the only living person who has read it. It's obscure and hard to find, but it does have a cameo of the Morrison-era JLA in one issue. Thanks for everything. Keep up the great work. Dave, the anti-monitor, Yost. Thank you so much, David. That is a superb email. It um, really is, and I would, uh, and and it's inspiring so many thoughts in my head, which aren't, which I'm, 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 I will hopefully not bore you with. But one thing that springs to mind, PJ, is could the '90s be described as the last era of comics that did have an identity worth holding up or parodying or otherwise? I was wondering that. I don't. I can't think if the noughties and the 2010s really have an identity they just sort of merge into one they're sort of the era where the movies come in and comics align to them maybe i don't know and 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 here's a, here's another random thought that springs into my head the same stuff that we would level against the you know the excesses of the 90s you know the kind of uh the variant covers the spectacle comic the you know the 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 potentially overabundance of crossovers because that would encourage people to buy um to some extent, could you not level the same accusation at, say, the 2010s? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because, like, particularly once the movies really started kind of getting traction, like, every every week, seemingly, there was a, it was another big crossover, another event, another kind of, a, you know, another kind of status quo reset. And I, yeah. and something I kind of miss from the 90s was that they they did seem confident enough to tell longer stories like to go a longer period of time before before re going back to issue one or or trying a new thing or yeah like i i could pick up issue 50 of jla and issue 100 issue one of jla and roughly feel as though i was reading the same book yeah i think because the problem is the crossovers they tried it again in the mid 2000s i think didn't they house of m and then civil war and those things both sold so well for Marvel that Marvel just then kept doing it. Oh my god! And and every yeah. every year that was a formula, wasn't it? It was like you have twelve months of storytelling, and then every summer there's a new event. You know, it's yeah. as you say, it's uh, Civil War, it's oh, whatever came next, like Secret World War, War Hulk, I think World War Hulk, uh, Siege. Um, Secret invasion. Uh, but also, the thing with that is it felt so exhausting. The Certainly Civil War into World War Hulk, because Civil War got so delayed, and it was eight issues already anyway, that it felt like it finished, and then World War Hulk started the next month. And it was yeah. like, oh my god, when... I I, I can't do this. <laughs> I, I, the real tragedy is, is that like I grew up reading these kind of stories, the stories we, we cover on, on this pod, and these are the things I wanted to create. And I, I think by the time, you know, PJ and I actually got into the realm of making comics, 
the industry and the audience had, had moved on quite a bit. And I think that's our tragedy, PJ, is that like, I don't know about you, I don't put words in your mouth, but it's like, I want to be making JLA. Like that was what yeah. I wanted to make. And I, I think the appetite among publishers and readers for a six volume superhero saga is maybe not what it once was. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to say one thing. And as I say, one sort of not really rebuttal, I guess, but more defense of the way you and I sometimes do go, oh, 90s. <laughs> uh, and that is in my, and I haven't gone back and listened to our old episodes. So, you know, please do. If someone knows better than me, feel free to pull up on other times we've done it. I'm sure there are. But I feel like the times you and I do it the most are around the depictions of women and the attitudes towards women in the comics. And even Morrison's JLA was guilty of it when you had Hitman beaming up and and looking at Wonder Woman with his X-ray vision. And some of the Black Canary stuff in JLA Year One, certainly, we were like, oh, 90s. And that's not so much 90s comics, although they were very guilty of it because it was massively much more a boys' club back then than it was now, or viewed as, and they were catering to adolescent male fans. So costumes were very revealing, um, and there was this attitude of the woman is the eye candy a lot. And I think that was just a very 90s attitude in general, not just in comics. It was everywhere. You look at the proliferation of the lads mags. They were bigger in the 90s than any other decade, I would argue, um, and things like that. So I think when when we are going, oh, 90s comics, that's the thing, certainly in my mind, that we are trying to pull up and focus on more than other things. And I'm sure we've done it about other stuff. I'm sure we've done it about too many pouches and flashover substance, things like that, as we've gone through. But for me, that is one thing that I will say the 90s was guilty of and will pick it up on when we come across it, because that was a just just how it was in that decade, and it's not cool. No, not quite, and, and well said. And uh, and I think uh, another interesting thing is perhaps the idea that, and I, this maybe came up when we were doing uh, Paradise Lost, but it, that really felt to me like a like a like a poor imitation of a Vertigo title, which of course is very kind of like well, t- tail end of the eighties, kind of going into. I mean, that would make sense because Garth Ennis, big Vertigo creator, and I have often described Mark Miller as a poor man's Garth Ennis. So <laughs> we're, we're pulling no punches this episode, PJ. Um, <laughs> But yeah, like just the idea that, um, uh, yeah, like, you know, it's interesting. It's so easy to kind of parody 80s comics for being, oh, that's when we got, when it went dark, when it went gritty, when it went self-reflective and meta yeah. and experimental. And it's- But I think in e- even in some of those bad stories, like the Clone Saga, which was just a shameless way for Marvel going, oh, Nightfall's doing well. And and also the first attempt to have Spider Man not be married anymore, but then obviously it's like, well, it's not Peter Parker, but we don't. And then, but they just replaced him with a clone of Peter Parker, so it wasn't even about the absence of Spider Man anymore. Oh, and 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 even in even a mix for trash, PJ, I I have a a young John purchased a very early issue of part of the clone, or somewhere a mix for Clone Saga where Ben Riley was Spider Man. Yeah. And I, to this day, that that is that is just carved on the inside of my skull. I love that issue. But that's it. I think I think there is even value in the Clone Saga here and there. I think the Lost Years, which was a miniseries by Dimitrius and Ramita Junior, which dealt with Ben Riley and Kane in the five years when they're away from New York and what they're up to there. I think that's a really good miniseries. Mm. Oh God, yeah. And I, I and I would. Um... 
I, I honestly, this this could be when I eventually, I don't know, retreat back into academia and write my thesis. Uh, I honestly feel that there's something quite profound going on in the Onslaught saga. Yeah. Um, I think Onslaught over mostly holds up quite well. There's dodgy issues in it here and there. The Thor tie-in is awful. But there is good stuff in Onslaught. And I think if you cherry pick as you read through it, you can get um, a lot of value out of that. Oh my god! Story, yeah, and and the closing moments of that, like it really feels whether they were aware of it at the time or not, but it it really felt like an era was was ending. Like hmm. the, the 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 moments with the Hulk uh, at the end of um, at the end of that. I mean, honest to goodness, that is some of the most amazing stuff I've ever read. And yeah. And who's that? Look, let's rip the mask off. Oh, it's Mark Wade behind the scenes, or it's uh, Scott Lobdell, <laughs> or or something. And it's just like, yeah, like there was good stuff there. I think there's something I, again quite profound there. The the passing of an era. Um, mm. Yeah, meta, very meta. But but yeah, again, David, thank you so much for your email. I feel like this will probably be an ongoing conversation. And as I say, I think you raised some amazing points that you you put a lot of thought into it, and it's an incredibly well crafted and thought out email. And I'm again sorry I mangled it for time. <laughs> no, to be honest, um, like if if the, if the measure of a podcast is is the quality of the letters you receive, then we're the best show ever made. Yes, yeah, we do get some amazing emails from from you fine folks out there in listener land, and we appreciate every single one of them, especially when you put the amount of thought into it that, that David clearly did, and. You know, as I say, even the small bits I disagree with there, I'm, you know, worth raising. And it's a conversation we should be having. So thank you, David. It's it's brilliant. And as I say, we are talking about at some point, maybe looking at some of those stories you bring up on the podcast. So um yeah, we don't know when, but stay with us for those. That's point, exciting. Keep 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 watching the skies or the space or keep you know, listening to these guys keep listening to these guys oh, pj that's what that's why we have pj on the show people he's he's oh he's yeah but that should have been the outro now i've ruined that so um well i'm, I'm gonna ruin it further pj because there, I, there's something i would very likely uh sorry very likely very quickly like to shout about which is uh the video game i wrote toxic crusaders um they've um just released uh, a playable demo oh in... I gotta go get on my Switch. Ah, sorry. The playable demo is not on the Switch just yet. I'm afraid. Oh, why it's... do you hate me, John? I'm sorry because 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 I delight in in seeing you in seeing you cry, PJ. Um, Fine, I'll stick with Zelda. Uh, well, to be fair, I mean that's also a very good game. Um, <laughs> but no, so, uh, it is uh, the playable demo is available to download on Steam. Um, other platforms, you know, all the usual suspects, they will be coming. But, you know, if you're a Steam user, um, you know, pre-ordering it or what? No, not pre-ordering it. Wishlisting it. That's the one. Wishlisting it helps a bunch. It will obviously make the ports to other platforms easier down the line. But yes, we are planning uh, to wheel it out across everywhere where you would normally get games. But if you're on Steam, go enjoy it. It's free. You can You can hear my dialogue in it. Well, not my dialogue. You hear what I wrote. And yeah, so hopefully it's entertaining. If I had Steam, I would do that. Well, you'll just have to hold out for Switch, PJ. I will do that. <laughs> uh, is there anything you'd like to shout about, PJ? Uh, no. Um, do you want to shout about your new car? I've got a new car. He's got a new car, people. I haven't figured out how to turn the lights on yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Avoid me on the road. Oh, no. You're shattering the illusion of being confident, PJ. Um, <laughs> uh, on that note, I should maybe thank Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. Uh, and Elliot Red for composing and performing our amazing theme tune, Justice. And PJ, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you to everyone who listens. Thank you, thank you, PJ, for talking about this. Uh, thank you to David for your, for your email. Thank you to everyone who writes in. Um, if I have exhausted this avenue of pleasure, PJ, he said, pausing for effect. You have. Would you please see us off in your own unique fashion? Keep listening to these guys. 